Hi, Sloan here. What if we were able to address the audio issues that we experienced earlier this month? Um, thanks to our indefatigable editor, Andy Rode, we've hopefully done that. And so now you should be able to explore a much better and more interesting question in this episode that's totally unrelated to the technology we use in our production process. Um, specifically, what if the secret to effective philanthropy was to give up control? Um, our guests on this episode explored exactly that question in a recent book called Letting Go, How Philanthropists and Impact Investors Can Do More Good by Giving Up Control. They are Meg Massey, a journalist covering social impact and social justice in finance, and Ben Robel, the Director of Communications at Village Capital. We'll talk with them about the intrinsically undemocratic nature of traditional philanthropy, the structures that have helped innovative investors and grant makers get around that, and some of the innovative financial institutions that have evolved in this mold. It's still early days for the model they describe, but there's plenty to be excited about. After all, we're talking about stakeholder capitalism on steroids here, right? This is a framework that doesn't just listen to community members, it puts them in control. Um, and, you know, as usual, we take questions from you at the end. Um, on this episode, we talk about greenwashing and asset management, this is the role of spirituality in sustainable investing, and whether or not California has something called winter. Stick around. And if you're looking to do a good deed, um, tell someone about this podcast or even reach out to us uh, with a question that we can answer in a future episode. Send us an email at freemoneypod at gmail.com whenever the heck you want to talk. Um, and if you leave us a funny comment on the Apple Podcast Store or some other review website, uh, we'll probably read it out loud on the podcast. Thanks so much for listening. And, uh, you know, with that, I guess, take it away, Sharkbait. Ahoy, Free Money Podcast listeners. I'm Sharkbait Buckley, the Disclosure Pirate, and I'm here to set ye straight about what's going on with this here show. Sloan Ortel works for Invest Vegan LLC, a New York registered investment advisor. Ashby Monk works for Stanford University, Adapar, Future Proof, Long Game, and various startups. All opinions expressed by either Sloan or Ashby are entirely their own and do nay reflect the opinions of their crew or any company. Clients who invest vegan may maintain positions in securities and strategies discussed in this podcast. Advisory services are only offered to clients or prospective clients where invest vegan and its representatives are properly licensed or exempted, and a client agreement has been executed. Arr. Here comes the money! Here we go! Money talks! Here comes the money! Welcome to the Free Money Podcast. This is where we give you the Brooklyn Bay Area consensus about institutional investing. That I mean, let's be honest, you crave. They do. They, the only time they might not crave it is when they're living through a climate apocalypse, which <sighs> seems to be happening more and more. Apparently, one third of Americans have lived through some form of a climate apocalypse <laughs> this year, and you're one of them, Slump. Yeah, I mean, like you know, we are you okay. We, I mean, we made it through fine. Uh, fortunately, we're on the third floor. Um, my landlord who lives in the basement had the basement flood and his dog got sick and he had this oh. birthday. Um, and, you know, we had our roof, roof actually burst open, um, which was... Wow. I mean, that, that, that's probably overselling it. We had a leak in the roof and then the, it kind of went down. Implode. Implode? Yeah, it caused like a little bubble. You know how the water bubble happens? I do. And um, Claire and I were just like sitting in the living room waiting for it to pop. Um, and like just it was like 1145 at night. And we we're just like, well, fuck. I mean, I, I guess, you know, it's going to do what it wants. <laughs> <laughs> you mean the giant water bubble in the paint? Is it responding yeah. to your requests? OK, no, no, no joke. I could I could curl up inside of this bubble. It's like it's now dried out and, you know, the roof's been patched, but the bubble is still there. Um, and there is enough size, there's, it's size enough for a human in the fetal position. It, My goodness. Yeah. It's really not chill. It's not even a little bit chill. No, but it is, you know, it's all part of ultimately why we want to mobilize this capital. And yeah, that goes you know, into some of my news stories, but finish your thought before I do the yeah, news. It's so, it's so funny. Like, I, I think, you know, I was talking with a friend on the phone and like in the course of that, we realized that we'd had two hurricanes in New York city in one week. Uh, you know, we had, we had the aftermath of another hurricane oh my gosh. Minnesota, you know, before it. So like, you know, 
I, I mean, how anyone can be unmobilized uh, after this? I mean, you know, I guess reality is just, you know, life sucks and then you wake up and you muddle through. But um, I'm hoping it was a wake up call for some people. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, except there is there is a little bit of news out there building on this that <laughs> uh, you say I do. That, <laughs> what um, the the climate related investment funds um, that are out there actually, according to new research, do a terrible job of actually reducing climate change. Um, it was something <laughs> like 70 of the 130 ESG related funds that have climate um, as their mission um, are not even sufficient to get us to Paris agreements in terms of their investment strategy. Mm. And I mean, so that, that comes up, we're going to talk about this a little bit later, I think, but you know, we're, we are seeing a lot of this ESG insanity. Um, yep. And I think we're going to end up with a lot more oversight just because it doesn't seem like it's working. Um, you know, just saying that it's an ESG fund isn't enough to actually drive capital towards sustainable investments. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And like so many people, I mean, the, the sustainable, I, you know, like went through and like screened out all those sustainable indexes recently. And like I, when I picked up the KLD, which is the oldest sustainable index, I thought that there would be maybe like, yeah, I mean, it's a 400, 400 uh, entity index. I thought there would be maybe 50 that didn't meet the, the criteria. Close to half of the of them uh, got screened out. Like companies like McDonald's are in there. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> You know, I, I mean, like, that's not sustainable. Like the, you know, it's, it's sort of this corporate, you know, please everybody version of sustainability that just, you know, is not fit for purpose. Yeah, that one, um, that was an interesting one. There was a couple more news stories on this topic, though, Sloan. One is, mm. is that we are seeing increasing amount of evidence that taking a sustainable approach drives out performance. And one from our good friends in Sweden Mm. Um, AP2 is one of the more quantitative buffer funds um, in Sweden. Uh, in Gothenburg, if I'm not mistaken. Very they... goth. Very goth. <laughs> <laughs> we got to watch ourselves here. We can't get too Swedish accent. Um, I almost did the chef, but I avoided it. Uh, the, the, the fund has been crushing it this year. It's, they've had their best half year performance. They're beating all their benchmarks. And oh, by the way, they use this moment to remind everybody that their entire portfolio from fixed income to equities to real estate to private equities has a climate risk um, lens baked right into it where they're tilting yep. away from everything and into climate, trying to get out of the dirty and into the clean. And the performance is there. So it, clearly it can work if you have the right approach and, and belief structure. Yep. Yep. I mean, like, I, I think I see on Twitter all the time, people are like, you know, coal prices are, are picking up a little bit. Uh, and people are like, oh, whoa, whoa, maybe it's time to buy the rally. And I, I feel like yep. people dedicated a third of the energy that they do to trying to like top tick or bottom tick or, you know, kind of market time, uh, you know, these cyclical energy things and instead focused on like not murdering the planet with their energy investments. <laughs> It's almost like you're suggesting they should do fundamental analysis instead of staring of. at charts. You know, I mean, yeah, like I, I hate to be a buzzkill. I hate to be like that chick with the you know security analysis copy and all that stuff. But like, I mean, come on, you got to actually know what the companies do. <laughs> but then you don't get to have fun with charts, Sloan. That's, That's the a good problem. Point. You know, nobody yeah. wants to do spreadsheets. They want to do like head and shoulders graphs in Bloomberg. You know, someone someone asked me last week if I believe in astrology, and it was like I believe in it exactly as much as I believe in technical analysis, which is Probably. fully, which is yeah. fully, <laughs> full <laughs> belief. Yeah, exactly. I live my life on the basis of it. I literally read my horoscope and plan my day. Uh, okay, future fund back in the news. Second to last news story here, slot for your FURI. Um, by the way, I've decided that the new FYI is IFY. Information I for you. Oh, information for so you. I have that's the title. That's a yeah. lady. You know, because F your FYI sounds a little freaking aggressive. Yeah, it's like a little F your eye there, pal. I IFY is like a little gift. 
Yeah, it's a little gift for you. Anyway, some <laughs> IFY. That's maybe what we'll call the news from now on, IFY. Uh, Future Fund came out with this neat little policy paper, which, of course, is the nerd I voraciously read. They have match, 10, match. 10 little things that they're like, makes us scared in the world. They put out mm. this paper. And it includes things you'd expect, like inflation and climate and interesting things in there. Um, but it was the it was a very interesting lead in to see these ten different indicators um, driving into a new portfolio construction mm. um, because they're like we're heading into an uncertain world and so we need a new portfolio construction. Here's the ten things we're worried about and here's what we're doing about it. Mm. And what raised my eyebrows a little bit was the sheer scale of cashish, cash money yep. uh, that they are now holding. How? Much cash, Sloan. Do you think Ooh, the future I, fund has now? It is above ten percent. I'm going to say thirteen percent. You're going percentages. I just want to know how much cash. How much cash? Oh. How much like Scrooge McDuck activity? Oh wow! Like okay, so how deep is the pool that Scrooge dives mm-hmm. into? Got it. Got mm-hmm. it. I'm going. I, I don't know how big future fund is, but I'm going to say seventy five billion. A little bit, a little bit much. A little, little bit, bit much. much. <laughs> what about twenty six? Twenty six billion. <laughs> How about a hundred trillion of cash? <laughs> a quadrillion of cash, right? Yeah, they sold they sold some NFTs, you know, uh, and then like yeah. uh, <laughs> No, I get you. I get you. No, I thought twenty six billion sounded like a lot of cash, but thanks for it sounds sounds like a lot of cash. I mean, like that, like what can you do with that? I mean, that's that that is like roughly the size of the economy of Sri Lanka. And we used to talk about cash drag on funds, you know, mm-hmm. like we're, oh, that's not invested and you've got inflation. By the way, they've got inflation written down as one of their fears mm-hmm. and they're sitting and, on a lot of cash. So that's I an mean, interesting one. But my cash final, has option value, you know, I mean, maybe they're out here waiting for, mm-hmm. you know, some kind of like, you know, mm-hmm. some big dislocation that like <laughs> we've all been. <laughs> I believe they're seeing the dislocations and they're getting ready to you know, position themselves for a reinvestment. This is counter cyclicality, I think maybe we're saying. Yep. Final news item. Mm. News item of the year. Okay. Wow. Or at least hilarious story of the year, maybe recategorized. The latest company to jump into the sustainable ESG finance craze full force is Philip Morris. Oh, sad. I love to see that stuff. Oh, wow. uh, yes. You know, the one company that provides things that kill you has now decided that it is entering the game. And to give them some credit, it's pretty hilarious when you read what they are going after. They are <laughs> issuing a series of bonds. Oh, let's call them murder bonds. <laughs> Um, and the goal of these bonds, and they'll have to pay a higher interest rate if they um, fail to meet these goals, is to reduce the percentage of cigarettes in their revenue, right? So they want to actually use these bonds to get out of the cigarette business and, and into, into something the, else. The vaping industry? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, opioids. Mean, I think opioids are the <laughs> next one. Yeah, we're uh, we're really interested in moving up the value chain. Of <laughs> yeah, exactly. products. You know, I, 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 we, you know, our share of wallet with with cigarettes is only like three percent. We could, you know, with heroin, we could be um, through the roof. I mean, they made a lot of news around Davos for saying that they would phase out cigarettes entirely. Um, and of course, hmm. the unstated implication is that they're just going to be selling jewels to all the kids. You know, yeah. Um, it's like, oh, do they own jewel? They either own it or it's a joint venture or okay. they have a, you know, a big competitor. I don't, I don't participate in that sort of vaping. I'm a classy gal. So, you know, just for uh, cigarettes, just, <laughs> no, I just, I'm more of a cigar kind of, kind of gal. Yeah, like, exactly. you know, a regular Monica Lewinsky. I'm a pu- tobacco pipe kind of a guy, yeah. you know, I get my leather, uh, elbow jacket on and I mean, walk around like, campus with my pipe tobacco. You get a PhD. Doesn't it, like one of those come with it? My mom literally gave me a jacket that has leather elbows. Um, oh, that's hilarious. It's pretty fantastic. <laughs> that's hilarious. That's my news. That's, that's the I news. Mean, that's, that, yeah. that's pretty. I love how it fits in perfectly with the present dystopia. Uh, yes. yes. You know, I mean, like, I, I think uh, it reminds me of earlier today, actually, I was like, you know, going like, who are the hundred biggest, you know, there's a paper that someone did where they're like the hundred biggest carbon emitters cause you know, 75% of overall carbon emissions. That's right. Um, 
And I was like, huh, who's the worst carbon emitter again? Just curious. Just wondering. Um, and it's obviously Suncor, the Canadian oil sands company. Oh, is it? I thought you were going to say Exxon or something like oh, that. Oh, no. No, it's yeah, Suncor. I mean, Exxon, Exxon is too strategically muddled to be the worst. Yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, but Suncor, too diversified. As too like diversified. Inter- yeah. yeah, exactly. They, they got tobacco. They're, they're watering down the murder. Yeah. Uh, but like, again, Suncor, remember murder bonds. This is, good, a, this is a pretty good uh, financial product innovation. You know, the fewer people your company kills, the lower your interest rate goes on the bond. That's pretty good. That's a win-win, I think. I, you know, I mean, if we were just a little bit more evil, I think we'd be sitting on a huge market opportunity here. Uh, but yeah, if, when you go to Suncor, their sustainability report is, front, is like their big splash. And they've got a picture of an oil engineer holding a, a, like a plant and being like, no. Uh, <laughs> it's too much. But... You know, I mean, fortunately, we have a guest to talk to. Uh, about- Let's talk to that guest. Yeah. Um, Meg Massey. It, do we have two guests? We uh, we have one out of two, and the number two, I'm sure, will join us soon. Uh, Meg Massey Sweet. is a journalist covering social impact and so- and social justice in the world of finance. Uh, ben Robel, who has not joined yet, uh, is a director of communications at Village Capital, uh, which does participatory investing. They wrote a book together called Letting Go, How Philanthropists and Impact Investors can do more good by giving up control. Oh, yeah, we need um, that. Yeah, right. Oh, we I need mean, more good. We don't need, I mean, maybe. Hi, Meg. Hi, Meg. Hey. We're just talking about how we need more good and less control. Yeah, we were, we were just getting into that, it. And that, that's, our, that's our whole vibe. So awesome. <laughs> so nice having you on. We'll see you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Just joking. <laughs> we solved everything. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Free Money Podcast is remarkably effective. Um, I, you know, I, I think we're still uh, waiting for Ben, but you know, in the meantime, we'll ask you. Um, you know, th- there's this kind of lack of democracy problem um, in sure philanthropy and in impact investing to understate it. Um, you know, and like a lot of really well-intentioned people are out here trying to solve problems that they've never experienced. Um, is there anything to do about that? Or is that just kind of the, wor- the world is bad and that's the way things are? I mean, democracy in general, there's, there's, a, there's, a, lot to, there's, a, lot, there's a lot to address there. Um, but there is, there, is a way, um, th- there is a way to make it, make it better in the philanthropy and impact investing space. Uh, the, um, my, my book, Ben Letting Go, How Philanthropists and Impact Investors Can Do More Good by Giving Up Control, um, and it, we write about some of the models for uh, anything along the loans to gift spectrum that uh, Edgar Villanueva talks about, how to um, make sure that that's not just someone, usually a cis white dude from up on high saying, I want to solve this problem and this is how it should be solved and I will give you all of my money. Um, you know, it's, it's very well intentioned, but if you're doing things to people, they don't tend to stick in the same way that they do if you are doing them with people and with their input and letting them say, actually, this is this is what we need. This is what we've seen work and not work. And we need to be on the same page if this is going to be if this is going to be successful. So that's bird's mm. eye view there. But are there any kind of like notable, uh, you know, kind of uh, mishaps, kerfuffles, issues that have like that kind of typified, um, you know, the the you know arms length model as it is. I mean, there's I, there's a long list. So there, many. There's a long list. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I mean, it's um we we lead off the book with um this isn't strictly speaking investing, but um, Mark Zuckerberg in Newark is a great example. He you know, New York, New York school systems legitimately have a lot of challenges, including funding. He said, I'm going to give you guys a hundred million dollars, but then they ended up kind of parachuting in all these consultants. And there's a whole book that was written about this. That's not my book, but we, we read it as part of our research. And that's, you know, pretty much typifies how parents were finding out like the day of, or the day before that their kid's school was closing or that they'd have to, you know, switch something around with their schedule. They were being invited to these, um, you know, town halls, um, doing air bunnies, uh, town halls where they were basically being, you know, everyone saying thanks for your input, but there wasn't actually any, it wasn't clear to them what control they had over shaping the project. 
uh, we talk about the real difference between, um, you know, feedback and letting go is about, it is about power, right? It's at the end of the day, a power dynamic. And, you know, think about the last time that you filled out a customer service form, um, you know, for a company, you know, tell us how we're doing. And maybe you fill it out, maybe you don't, but it's usually you can't, if you're going to take the time, you're like, they may not even read this. No, and so similarly, when you're asking people to give their, give their time and give their opinion on, you know, your investment project, if you're not actually saying, we're going to take all of these ideas and we will select the top three and then you will vote on them and we will in fact like abide by that vote. If there's not just like a clear path for, we're asking you for your time and your thoughts and this is actually how it will be used, then you start from a pretty low, there's a pretty low trust differential already, but then like, you're the only people who are going to be weighing in are the people who like love filling out forms or you know, have nothing to do with totally. work that day. Yeah. I think uh, Sloan, I'm going to jump in on this next question because yeah. it, it relates to the structures of how we do this. And so much of my work is like, how do we design these, these processes and investment strategies to be effective? Um, first off, like it would be cool to hear how you define that spectrum of philanthropy and impact investing as we as we think about structures, sometimes it's important to like remind people what the different objective functions are and how they're different from you know, traditional investing and that spectrum all the way to like, you're just giving money away. And then, and then in terms of yeah. the structures, like how, how do we actually like delegate these authorities? Cause in my world, we build these delegation frameworks. They're incredibly elegant and they drive really cool outcomes if you can get them right. But like in your world, what is a really good structure or a good kind of means of letting go for these organizations to drive higher impact? Right. No, it's, it's a good question. And for the purposes of the book, um, philanthropy for us is grant making. It's, you know, you are, this is a gift. You're maybe measuring the results or asking them to report back, but you're not actually expecting a return for impact investing. Um, for impact investing, we're defining it more as there's an expectation of return or a loan being paid back. So that's how broadly, broadly speaking, um, that's how broadly speaking we're defining the space. Um, so, oh, hey Ben. Hi Ben. Hey Ben. We were just jumping into some of the structures. Um, Meg was just gonna walk us through some of the structures that like allow you to let go. We were just talking through some of your book. And excited to dig in. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I was just talking about, you know, loans to gift spectrum and how we're defining philanthropy versus impact investing. And one distinction that we make in the book that sometimes gets lost on folks is that, you know, impact investing grew out of traditional finance. Like, yes, it's got a philanthropic twist on it. And a lot of people, I think, believe that the origin story is that this is, it's a form of philanthropy, but structurally it's more, it's much, much closer to traditional finance. So that's the um, so that's that's another really important distinction that we make. And then I forgot the rest of the question. <laughs> you know, just that, what what are some of the structures that actually allow them to let go? Right. So so the actual oh, sure. you know uh, control it without neglecting the mission of it. Right. And another, yeah, and a really important piece of that is the distinction between lived experience and learned expertise. You know, Ben and I both have, you know, went to liberal arts colleges. I have a master's degree. He's getting a master's degree. Like, it's not that that knowledge is useless or that working on Wall Street for 10 years is useless. But if that's the only voice in the room and that's the only perspective um, at the decision-making table, you're going to get a very limited set of options. You're not going to, it's not going to reflect the people that, you know, this, you know, loan, investment, grant, whatnot um, is intended to help. So on the philanthropy side, we have um, a process that's been around for about 40 years, um, officially called uh, participatory grant making. And in that model, funding decisions are made uh, by the community that the fund um, is intended to support. And they do that by, um, the, and we, there's a couple different ways you can do that. Um, with some, it's, you know, setting the criteria for the grants. They do that um, with the community or have them narrow down applications, you know, grant applications, or actually, you know, vote on, we, you know, we want to give, this is where we want the grant to go to. Um, last week, I know, or two weeks ago, I know you guys were talking about um, OnlyFans and actually one of the, um, 
One of the, what a really great example of this is the Red Umbrella Fund, which is a fund by and for sex workers. Um, it grew out of a movement in the early 2000s and they've been around for a really long time. And we're responsible for kind of getting institutional philanthropy to think about the perspective of, you know, people who consensually engage in sex work versus lumping everything is it's all sex trafficking. It's all human trafficking. And they um, the people who make decisions are, you know, they are activist groups that are uh, led by sex workers, either current or former sex workers. And so on the philanthropy side, that's. Um, you know, Red Umbrella Fund is yeah about 10 or 20 years old, but that model goes back to the 1970s. On the impact investing side, it's a lot newer. Um, impact investing itself, as you guys know, has only been, you know, in the lexicon for about a decade. And the funds that we profiled in the book, a lot of them are, are very new, but the structures that, um, that are emerging are around who's on the investment committee, um, how due diligence is conducted, and also on who is sort of in charge of the balance sheet. Mm. And uh, with the latter example, the Heron Foundation, um, they do some great stuff on the grant-making side, but in terms of investing their endowment, they announced last year that they were going to fully transition control over those investment decisions to the communities that they serve. And they've been pretty transparent Sorry. about how they're very much building the plane as they're flying it. And, you know, there's, it, it's, you know, the process is probably going to take years to fully do, but that transparency and that, you know, commitment to the process being the point, frequent refrain in the book. Uh, yeah, that's really, um, that's, that's one end of the example. Uh, ben, I don't that's know if you awesome. want to share a couple others. Yeah. Well, may, Ben, maybe you could, uh, one of the examples in your book, which goes to this impact investing piece was the the small business loan fund i think that, that the working class residents of boston were implementing and so it'd be cool to like just hear about that case study and the process of operation and the implications and and kind of understand like what the different outcomes are from like what what might be expected from that like command and control style of course yeah Computer no thanks nice for having us on the podcast fault. sorry with the technical <laughs> issues earlier um so i actually found out about the uh, the Boston Ujima Fund, um, because the person who created it was the former uh, president of the the Boston NAACP. So just straight up former teacher activist who was running the, the Boston NAACP. Um, I used to work with the NAACP and I, I knew that she was doing great things around economic justice in Boston like 10 years ago. Um, but the story is that this woman's name is Neil Evans. Um, she... Um, she basically, back in 2012, you all might remember, uh, the city of Boston submitted a bid to um, to uh, have an Olympics in the city. And, you know, when you have an Olympics in any city, it tends to stratify whatever wealth gaps there already are. People get pushed out of their neighborhoods. You have all these stadiums that create a little economic opportunity and then just sit empty for years, taking up space. And basically what happened was the city hired some high-powered, high-cost consultants to just develop a strategy for how to redevelop the entire south side of the city, which is, of course, very black, very working class. And when when residents found out about it, they were they were rightfully furious. And um, they kind of just, you know, for Nia, she sort of said, I'm not even going to try to engage in the city's normal processes anymore. I'm not even going to try to send NAACP members to town meetings and have them hold signs and give speeches because clearly the city isn't listening. Uh, like they called a Boston, uh, what was it? What's the BPD? They call it the the Bo Black People Displacement Agency, the, the, the you know Boston um, Housing Authority. Um, so she said, "I'm going to make my own model." And over the course oh, of yeah. two years, they worked with these essentially Marxist academics. I'll just say it. I mean, they're, they're what they are, and they they co-designed in the course of sort of dozens of community sessions. They co-designed this investment fund that invests to local small businesses. So it's sort of figuring out where real estate you're going to get a are you going to get a, a, a dry cleaner in this spot in the neighborhood are you going to get a grocery store you know we need more affordable housing um they designed this model called the ujima fund where hmm. um so like residents get contrast to that with the and, uh, way that philanthropy is typically practiced i mean like the you know i i saw a story yesterday about the giving pledge um you know it's the iconic thing uh you know rich people say they'll give money away um, and, you know, expect praise for that. Um, and in some cases deserve praise for that. Um, but you know, like the, 
this seems a lot more, you know, kind of grassroots driven and community rooted, uh, you know, where the giving pledge people seem would seem to have to like do a lot of work to get into those communities, understand what's going on in order to even get to a place where they could write a check. Right. You could spend you could spend months and hire consultants to tell you, hey, here's what the community members want. Here's what they need. Or you could just literally ask. Them. Yeah. I mean, most philanthropy is incredibly top down, incredibly closed off, incredibly insular. Um, and, uh, yeah, you know, we're seeing that folks inside philanthropy. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like area vegan investment yeah, services, especially um, the, I, you know, I'm, kind of like, uh, I'm curious, slowly. like, you know, when you think about, you know, kind of the investment side of this though, cause I know Ben, you're at a firm that's doing this participatory investing now, you know, Meg obviously you've stared at this problem forever. Like whenever you think about these philanthropies, these, you know, these kind of impact opportunities, often people go, okay, cool, I'm giving money away. Um, how, yeah. does it work, how does it work differently when you're investing for a return? Um, I'll, I'll, I'll turn it over to Ben in a sec, but I think one, one important starting point is that it's not just about, it's less about the what and more about the how. So much of the um, impact investing and philanthropy conversation is about the causes themselves, which are all great. It's great to be committed to those causes. It's great to give them money. Uh, the control piece is about, you know, okay, who decides who, who decides who decides, right? Who decides who gets the money? If you say you're committed to racial equity and want to invest with a racial, you know, with a racial equity lens, okay, so what is what does that actually mean? Have you have you talked to anyone who is you know experienced with this issue? Uh, to to set up your process, um, but the village village capital uh, where Ben works and um, he can talk more about it. I think that's a that's a really good example of how there's you actually do see um, there's a finance there's a certain a financial performance component to it. Yeah, I mean, I work at Village Capital and we invest in in sort of high growth tech driven startups that have some sort of impact focus. So some of the companies we work with are, um, are, are helping people uh, on the African continent send money around with their mobile phones. Um, there's a lot of agriculture technology that's helping farmers in California save water with, you know, little, little sensors and, um, a lot of education at tech companies. And, um, the model we use is participatory, which means that we bring together groups of entrepreneurs, uh, all sort of focused on the same problem. Um, for instance, we'll bring together uh, 10 entrepreneurs working on fintech in South Asia. Um, and we'll put them through a training program. And then at the end of the program, all the entrepreneurs have sort of interviewed each other, started to sort of poke critiques at each other's businesses, watch each other develop. And we ask them as a group to collectively decide who should get our money. Um, so it's a kind of very, very different way of investing in startups than most venture capital, which is a bunch of you know, wow. three guys in a skyscraper in, in San Francisco just to say, I like this business because founder is tall. Um, and we've done it 70 times, which is a lot. And, um, and we found the, the, the number that Meg is referring to is that, uh, number one, when you compare it to like a control group, number one, it does result in more women getting money. And uh, number two, um, our portfolio is like, you know, performing on par with other, any other portfolio that, that would be picked normally uh, or even slightly better. Um, so that's, again, that's high growth tech startups, people. very different when you're talking about small business people <laughs> in Boston, but the principle behind <laughs> it, participation is the same. Um, we had some of that in the first few years. So the first few years, it was just like, let's just try this out. And yeah, it was, there was some cheating. There was some, some games, gamesmanship. Um, and, um, we basically worked in a bunch of, a bunch of little tweaks here and there. So one of the things is that the entire process is transparent. So everyone can see the score you give to everybody else. Um, whoever gives, so it's complicated, but there's eight categories on which you can give someone a score of one to eight. So it's like a very, you know, it, it, it takes a whole day to do the scoring, but for every startup, every startup, let's say startup X comes up. Startup X, we're looking at category Y, and it's who gave them the highest score in that category and who gave them the lowest score in that category. And then they have to explain themselves. So, you know, let's say someone was trying to cheat and like give their friend hires, like you have to actually. So, so we, we created like, uh, but it's a game, you know, and I think that um, it, the, the system that we're talking, there's any system that we're talking about creating, a, a, you know, a set of rules around which groups of people can, can deliver money. There's an element of, when of you, like game 
uh, what's the word? Game when you guys go through this process, and, um, it's, it's also kind of fun. I didn't hear you describe that, that, that process. And, um, yeah, a lot so of the work we've done at Stanford, where I'm on faculty, um, research faculty, we've studied stakeholder engagement policies for the development of infrastructure and how the more kind of holistic you are in stakeholder engagement, the more like uncertainties you convert into risks. So like, I don't know, this is maybe a little too academic, but like the notion is that capital flees uncertainty and it, it chases risk because you need risk to get paid, right? That like we get paid for taking financial risks, but uncertainty, you, you have no clue what's going to happen. And so this participatory process to me feels like a pathway, like a novel pathway of taking all of these uncertainties and bringing them into a framework that allows you to better understand the risks and potential outcomes. And so you can start to like convey this with like almost commercial logic. Um, I don't know if that resonates with you or if, if you've seen your, your funders and philanthropists and impact investors talk in those terms. Yeah, no, I think that that definitely resonates. It's a way of, you know, it's a way of wrapping your head around if you're saying, okay, we want to invest in a small business in this community or invest in this type of technology and you don't know all the unknowns about, as you said, about the market, about the potential customer base, about you know the community where you want to where you want to manufacture, set up shop. All the all those things can be can be they'll at least be more known and can be quantified as risks rather than simply being well. We'll figure this out. Um, Lucas Turner yeah. Owens, who was the first fund manager of Ujima, when we talked to him about their model, which, you know, they, it's the residents of the, of these neighborhoods in Boston that vote on, um, that vote on where their investment goes. And they may have invested as little as like, I think $50 is the minimum. And the fund also has investments from, you know, local institutions around Boston, big name investors, but only the residents get to decide. Um, get to decide how the money's spent. And he said, you know, there's a real logic to this that if they say we really want to invest in, you know, this area doesn't have a good grocery store, we want to invest in a grocery store, like there's every reason to think that they will then become paying customers of that service. Like there's there's a real logic to it that um, I think fits very nicely into what you're describing. Yeah, it's like it's like the next evolution of the crowdfunded platform. Like for some reason, mm. crowdfunding it felt like it was like a moment in time. Like you, you, when I say that word, you can almost transport yourself back seven years ago when it was kind of happening. Yeah. Um, but but na- but like that, there was a thing there where it was a blend of like customer slash investor, and and it was de-risking by saying, "Oh, look, there's this crowd," and I've seen crowd. I did a paper on this. I've seen crowds used for like local infrastructure. Um, like, Hey, where should we put the playground? Like, let's get the community to, to put up the first 1% of the cost of the playground. And if you could do that, then you knew that like, it was worth the other 99%, things like that. Yeah. I mean, there's definitely a lot of examples of participatory decision-making on the, on the municipal level. Um, and we talk in the afterward about participatory budgeting, um, which can happen. It can be run by a you know government on the local state, federal level. It can be run by, a body like the you know the World Bank or a, a um, non governmental you know one of these larger True. multilaterals um, and yeah I mean it makes total sense I like that one where you have to get them to commit a little bit of money first to make sure that they actually Bay want Bay it um, and, uh, I guess I would worry that in the Bay Area you would just having people who can afford to get the money, money right? so you still get the stuff that and that's where it's interesting we've been looking recently into whether this stuff applies to real estate are you all in DC. Well, yeah. So then we all have the same thing where there's these sort of local fights around around development and, you know, who's actually deciding what happens in these neighborhoods where people who've lived there forever get kicked out because the university has expanded or whatever. The elite institution has decided it wants to buy this building. Um, and then all those employees need really nice condos to live in. Um, so we were like looking at what, how does participation apply to this? And it's actually kind of hard because what is, who is the... Um, what's the word who has standing, right? Who, who, who lives in the neighborhood? Is it, is it the closest 200 people, the closest 2000 people, uh, a property takes 10 years to develop. So God bless it's going yeah, to change over those 10 years. You know, um, it's still different than when you just cut a check to, you know, human like, rights uh, group. So the, our, I don't really have a point local, with that other than that. It's, uh, it's interesting, um, but you know, this ultimately gets public ownership and all sorts of stuff that, uh, they're all really needing to go. Uh, 
people. Um, yeah. You know, and like, the, you know, that's a form of participatory funding too, where they're like, <laughs> uh, you know, they participate in democracy and then they fund whatever they want. Um, you know, I, I'm curious if this makes you a little bit of an odd duck in the, in the institutional fundraising game, because like, you know, you might read, you know, if you're out here trying to invest in companies this way and you talk to investors and they're all like fold up on the metaverse or whatever, and they want to invest in metaverse companies, um, you know, I mean, like, that, do you find that, um, I mean, I guess it, it's probably great to be able to avoid those hype trains by, by structural design in the, in the firm, but um, like, does it weirden the process of operating the business? You don't want to know anything more. I had to ask that last time too. Was... <laughs> <laughs> so what, the the like, what is the metaverse? I don't know what the metaverse is. Maybe behind the name. Sorry, Meg, you want to? Oh, this is the this is the Mark Zuckerberg thing with the. Oh yeah, this is the Mark Zuckerberg thing. Yeah, I mean, I just think people associate venture capital. People associate venture capital with like Mark Zuckerberg because. The social network was a movie. Like that's that's it's like this stuff isn't real. It's all just made up terms, right? And so, why does investing have to be this thing where you have to invest in ten companies, expect nine of them to fail, and speaking one of, them of to like no, Facebook? That's just oh, the sorry. way that everyone. Like, I was going to say, speaking so of the no, no, insanity, like you're saying earlier on. Yeah, I mean, the metaverse can get the money it needs to get from you know. I I think the venture capital space. a lot more types of businesses could definitely benefit from de-biasification. I don't know if that's a word. And you you had mentioned Meg that like one of the things that this form of decision making facilitates is like removing bias. I'm curious if you have any examples or. Um, if there's like a part of the process that like allows us to um, kind of get at those issues of all the different biases we see in the in the space, yeah, I, I, debiasification. I mean, you know, when you think about it, there's already a risk happening in venture capital if you're like only investing in you know white founders who are guys who went to, sorry who went to Stanford. Then like you're <laughs> like that's not a very that's not a very diverse portfolio. So True. diversity can mean diversity can mean a whole a whole range of things. But it's a pattern that works, but- <laughs> I'm told. <laughs> well, the pattern matching, that's the sad thing, right? So like literally yeah. there's a, a push to the heuristic. And so the co-creation path, you know, ideally you're bringing in different voices and you're getting different perspectives. And maybe that breaks you from that pattern. But it's true. They, they revert to the, the pattern. Right. And the idea is to, te- is to test other, it's to test other patterns. Um, we look for venture capital specifically, we look at, you know, how are, okay, how are you, what's your deal flow look like? How are you identifying potential opportunities? There's been a ton, you know, written about that and how to mitigate bias in that process. Um, and then when you look at, um, when you look at also the due diligence process, we saw some opportunities there as well. Um, seats on an investment committee, honestly, are really like that's kind of the most straightforward way to bring in more voices to the decision making table. And that will look different depending on how the fund is structured. But like the um, the Olamina Fund, um, which is based in the Bay Area, you know, they they have that model for their um, for their fund, which invests in um, in BIPOC led financial institutions where they have a, in a committee that's you know, includes people who are, are BIPOC, who, uh, who work on, work at those institutions or have experience with them. And, um, you know, the, the, the frustrating thing I think for, um, for some of this is that these, because these models are so new, it's hard to say we can absolutely prove that this is, you know, that this works in this way. A lot of it is so experimental, although that's, I think part of the exciting thing about it, investment is about risk. It is about, you know, taking a chance and seeing what works and saying nine times out of 10, you probably are going to fail, but the 10th time, you know, who knows what's going to happen. And I think, I think going in with that, that's a mindset shift and not, you're right. Not every investor is going to embrace it, but I think that's um, been alluded to this earlier that we're seeing that generally generationally be a shift and uh, hopefully that, that momentum continues. Yeah, we'll be cheering it. I mean, I, I want to ask you one more question, then I'll let you guys go. Uh, you know, you mentioned an investment committee, and we roast investment committees here uh, with some frequency uh, <laughs> because, um, I mean, at least you know, in the example of here in New York City, like you know, we've got 
more committees than we do uh, subway lines uh, governing our our large institutional you know investments and you know and it running those winds up being a nightmare because you know you have to convene 400 people at 17 different times in order to make a decision um, and I'm curious like you know how does one avoid the you know kind of enroaching bureaucratic nightmare aspect uh, of uh you know of this right like that you know are there costs of of this model in terms of increased time to receiving funds uh you know it, that that are that, you know challenges that kind of need to be mitigated and designed for yeah yeah it takes more time it generally takes more time there are certain models that are around about voting online and there are some really great tech platforms um, like Lumio and Polis that you can use for, for that. But the majority of the models we're talking about involve convening people in person or over Zoom, which has become a lot easier to get 400 people on Zoom than in person. Um, and yeah, I mean, the Zoom stuff kind of sucks because you're on Zoom and no one wants to be on Zoom for two hours, you know, on a Thursday afternoon after you work. But the in-person stuff that we went to the Boston Ujima Fund, we went to a meeting um, right before the pandemic shut everything down. And it's you know, it was this two hour long meeting. You're in a room that's normally used as like a community center um, uh, for like activists. Um, there's a real like energy of sort of activism in the room. You know, people have cookies and orange juice and everyone goes around the room and introduces themselves. And, you know, frankly, for the first hour, I was like, oh, my God, this is the slowest meeting I've ever been in. But that like introduction pays off because by the end of the meeting, you're like, I know 20 people incredibly well. And, you know, people stick around for an hour and a half after the meeting to talk. It's the, the like Mike said, the process is the point. Um, I, I'm not trying to say that the entire world should be participatory, everything. Um, what we say in the book is what if, you know, we want to get to a point where 50% of um, investment committees or grant making committees have at least one person um, with lived experience on it. And maybe participatory grant making um, is a, is a yeah, model guys, that works for 25% of, you know, it's 10% of letting go um, how philanthropists and impact it, investors. It, we're not saying it needs to be at all times, but um, uh, if done uh, right in the right place, if applied uh, as a tool, it can really have an unbelievable knockout effect. Wow. I mean, I am just going to give up a little bit more control in my day-to-day life every every day now i mean i i'm just gonna try and you know we we did a really big project at stanford which is like coming to the close i didn't want to distract from that conversation but um it was about co-creation in projects mm. and um joanna and jess joanna Sia and and jess remington um on our team like did something that's called co-creation and so i have like deep understanding of what um ben and meg are doing and it's awesome it, and it really yep. is the future of decision-making in uncertain and difficult environments. It's kind of starting in impact and philanthropy, but actually like there's a growing number of tools to like mobilize the power of the crowd mm. and, and just get smarter at decision-making. So I, I think it actually goes to the core of decision science mm. and that like some of the things they're inventing now will be applied in like investment committees at pension funds. Um, yep. and, and I can actually think of one, which I'm not, I'm not sure if I'm supposed to say, but they've, you're using this technology platform to actually enlist a big crowd and, and like they score the crowd, the crowd comes in to uh, help make a decision and, um, and they're like seeing better outcomes. They're making smarter decisions and, right. and that's because they're getting a more diverse set of, of inputs and like, but engaging in that in a rigorous way rather than in kind of a, you know, ad hoc or, you know, tailored mm. way each time. So very cool book. Very cool, but a very cool concept. And yeah, I, I, I've seen similar, like when I was scoring the, you know, the, all the public companies on earth, uh, not too long ago, um, like there are a number of companies, particularly in fashion, um, uh, that kind of, you know, view themselves as mostly this like platform on top of a lot of data, um, that allows them to like, you know, kind of validate concepts really quickly to kind of do like an alt H&M, alt Zara, fast fashion thing. Right. Not particularly, I mean, this that's not a particularly good for the world, in, but, you know, instantiation of it. Um, but the whole concept of those companies, the whole reason that, you know, that they exist and what they'll sell to you is we have this unique participatory way of deciding yeah. what gets built. Um, so and yeah, participatory anyway. is like code for collaboration. 
And, and so yep. when I wrote the book, Reframing Finance, it was all about how collaboration among investors would facilitate innovation because they're scared to innovate on their own. And if they can pull in their peers and like widen the kind of number of um, organizations around the table, they can pool capital, pool their career risk, pool the actual, you know, all those things. Yeah. And so that I, in my mind, like that collaboration, that participation, like this is a pathway to trying new things. Yeah. And doing it in a way that like everybody, everybody kind of gets cover. I mean, not that that's like, but it's, it's but a beautiful it's, thing. It's a beautiful, it's a beautiful thing. thing. Like, yeah. Like, you know, you kind of launder the career risk. You do. Uh, and like by, you know, by creating buy-in, by having partners, and then, you know, you, you're able to do truly revolutionary things without, you know, seeming like that was your explicit intention. Yeah. Uh, because you simply create space to do revolutionary. Because starting stuff is hard. Starting stuff is hard. Having some issues with setbacks. Uh, <laughs> Darn it. But, there we go. There we go. Because uh, <laughs> starting stuff is hard happens to be our new segment. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so, so what stuff oh, did you yeah. have that was hard for the stuff you're starting this week? Oh, we're going to be first. Um, um, the I Invest Vegan, today is September 7th. Uh, Invest Vegan is open to the public today. We're taking customer accounts. and uh, Is there a minimum? No. Can I have um, an account then, please? Yes, of course. You can, Ashby. Okay. Um, how yeah, do I do it? Like, what should I do? Send you an email? Do I go online? Um, oh, you go to investvegan.org. Um, and when you're there, there's, um, you know, basically there's a little call to action at the bottom of the page. Okay. You can, you know, schedule a meeting with me to talk about the strategy in detail if you'd like. Um, and there's also like uh, an opportunity to just open up the questionnaire and begin filling out the questionnaire. Um, wow. Because the big, like, I mean, obviously managing the investments is hard. You know, uh, managing the portfolio is hard, all that stuff is hard. But what I'm really trying to nail here is kind of a mass customization that allows me to service a lot, a lot of people at once. Awesome. Um, you know, because if you come out and say, I will literally take your $10, Ashby, and manage to put them in a diversified portfolio of 50 stocks. Yeah. Um, crazy what they're doing with technology. Well, I'm thinking the starting of this stuff is hard for you, but it sure sounds easy for me, which is quite good. That's the, that's the goal. That's the yes. goal. hard for me, easy for you. Uh. <laughs> All right. Beautiful. Well, my, my little instance of starting stuff is hard. Uh, I interpreted the question a little differently this week because I keep seeing pension funds making net zero commitments. Ooh, and yep. so they're, they're starting themselves on this pathway. And I know, and now you guys know that none of them have a clue on how they're going to do it. <laughs> And that's like a, that's a true statement. Like they're all yep. making these. And I, I think this is a little bit like when Kennedy was like, we're going to the moon. We're yeah. going to the moon to, because it's hard, you know? <laughs> and I love it when Kennedy said, we choose to go to the moon and do the other things. And I always wanted to know what were the other things in mm, the Kennedy statement. But anyway. Yeah, they're drugs probably. Probably. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Or people who aren't his wife. But, yeah. I'm bummed. Um, but look, I think what's interesting about all that is Kennedy had no clue how we were going to the moon and neither are these pension funds in terms of net yep. zero. But it's important to make commitments when you're starting things. Get out into yep. the public and be like, I'm doing this. Yep. And, and like you came on the show, you know, I don't know, a couple months ago and you're like, I'm doing this vegan thing. Starting to think. And then, the, the, you know, one week later, you had the most delightful website on the internet. Um, <laughs> but anyway, that's that's an important thing about starting stuff is hard. Making public commitments, it's hard. Yeah, boy, it does tie you to the mast, as they say, force you to like make progress and uh, and continue to like get towards that big goal. So, kudos well, to you, and kudos to these pension funds. Yeah. And like, I mean, they're really doing a good job using their position in the industry. Um, you know, but like, I mean, even by going on and be like, we have no idea how we're going to do this, but we're pretty sure people will solve it for us if we keep making enough noise about it. Yeah. Um, That's pretty know. confident. It's like, yeah. we're going to the moon. Oh, we're not yeah. working on it, but we're going yeah, yeah, to the moon. Yeah. <laughs> you know, when you make those pizzas, we'll buy them. Just yeah, FYI. Exactly. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, it's like, it, it's a very enlightened way to live life. I think, I think it's um, wonderful. Yeah. Speaking of enlightenment. 
this show's flowing today. Yet another segment. Yeah, we got these great guests. Everyone shows up on. I know exactly. The technology platform never disappoints us. You know, it's really a beautiful thing. The first question we have. Would you want to give a little description of what Dear Ashby is, and maybe have people give? Oh, oh yeah, ratings. Yeah, yeah. Well, you're saying people don't already know. The, the, um, this is the segment where we uh, take your questions and we put them in front of the one and only, Dr. Ashby Monk. Hello. Um, and then we riff on them. Sweet. Um, if you would like to ask a question of your very own, um, just email us, uh, freemoneypod at gmail.com or um, freemoneypodcast.com, which is the second most delightful website on the internet behind investbeacon.org. Uh, it is also incredibly lovely because there's, there's something that doesn't exist anywhere else on earth. A mm, meme swamp. A meme swamp. Yeah. I have yep, never. Yep. I think you invented something, unless you tell me you stole that from somewhere. But the I think meme I, swamp. I think I did too. I think I innovated. Um, like yeah. yeah, the meme swamp. Was it co-created? It. You know, it was a participatory project. You know, like, <laughs> Fuck yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, the way that those memes get curated is I share memes on my Instagram account all the time, and the ones that people like, I put on the meme swamp. Oh my god. Uh, that's yeah. how I do the news on this show. <laughs> the things that people like on my Twitter feed that becomes news. Yep, I mean it's all it's, it's all, all co-creation. It's all co-creation. Read the book. Synergy. Um, <laughs> all right. What's the first question? First question is like, I mean, I am excited for your take on this, and I hope it's fire and brimstone. Mm. Um, mm. The SEC, the SEC seems to be getting pretty serious about looking into greenwashing in asset management. Yes. Um, how do you think this changes the bar, quote unquote, for what large institutional investors expect from their asset? So the bar will go from being subterranean mm-hmm. to something above terrainian. So it'll be like a couple inches above the floor. It's going to go from below ground to above ground is what I try <laughs> to say. Yeah. So, so look, it's so insane. Like depending on your math, there's 35 trillion or 90 trillion in the, in, in sustainable capital. And like, there's no data today. Like, let alone like, oh, the world still sucks. Let's leave that to the side. There's no outcomes data or analytics. Mm. There's no established mechanism to integrate these data into decision making. Yep. And so we have 35 to $90 trillion of capital operating without an established theoretical framework. So, of course, it's bullshit, most of it. Yeah. And so what's going to change to the, the question? We're going to get real serious about outcomes. We're going to stop focusing so much on, does this company have a policy statement? And we're going to start asking, does this company kill human beings with cigarettes? And if so, can we invest in their murder bond? Yeah, 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 exactly. How do we de-murder, de-risk? How do we the- demurify this yeah. product? And can we finance it? With a bot. <laughs> just picture like an alternative Ashby with like a green visor on as like a hedge fund. He's like, wow, murder bonds, huh? Murder yeah. bonds. Bye. Uh, bye. <laughs> so that's my brimstone. That's my fire and brimstone for you. That's, I mean, hey, that's welcome. Yeah, it's very, uh, it, you know, honestly, it, it feels like you're taking crazy pills until the SEC starts investigating somebody who's been like, I, I, when, when they announced that they were investigating DWS. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I had actually had three meetings that prior week that mentioned a bullshit thing that DWS had did, done, did three separate bullshit wow. things that DWS has done. Wow. Um, you know, like, and like for something to be that high in the zeitgeist, yeah. uh, you know, and it's, it's not like a meeting with a zillion asset managers with, or anyone. Anyway, um, next question. Do you see any sort of intersection between spiritual practices and sustainable investing? I love it. I love picturing our listeners just being super deep, you know, just like yep. thoughtful. Like a lot of the people listening to this, they're in a lotus position. I don't know if you nope, do that. I, I mean, I actually am in a lotus position. I see position, you. Right? You are. Like actually, literally, you are. Um, you can't see me, but I am in it too, right? Yeah, like that's how we do it. Yeah. Um, I, and I think it's a fantastic question because I I love to read about all the different spiritual things, mostly because those are pathways to self-knowledge. And, and so I think there is a connection between the spiritual practices and sustainable investing and investing generally. 
Um, if you like spend much time, like understanding the powers of meditation or, you know, what, uh, like monasteries were for in like Christian religion back a hundred years, it was about building this like muscle of focus, you know, like there's a concentration muscle that you can improve. And so increasing concentration and focus, both inward and outward, is a part of all these spiritual practices. And I, I think that focus on assets and portfolios and where we are in the world, I do see a connection there. Interestingly, um, I always used to mention this when I would talk about investment beliefs. Investment beliefs are something that we have helped a lot of long-term investors implement. Google investment beliefs, and you'll see Canada Pension Plan, Ontario Teachers, Calpers, Australian Super, they've all got them. And investment yep. beliefs are kind of the equivalent of like, you know, the Ten Commandments. You know, it's like there are certain things that we think is important for markets to function effectively. We are the base of capitalism, by the way. And we think long-termism is important, that yep. risk and reward are important, like key kind of foundational pillars that are sometimes hard to quantify, by the way, where it's like difficult to find the perfect theoretical justification to say, we think there's value in long-termism, but we write it down anyways. And it's meant to guide the internal folks at pension funds. And then the combination of those is just really about self-knowledge, like where you are in the world, what are you capable of doing? What strategies can you outperform in? You know, what should you go passive? So I love this. I, I think somebody should write something about like spirituality and, and investing because, you know, like, Take the other side. There's a whole lot of people who still think markets are efficient, which is yep. which is about as like religious a belief as you can find. Like, yep. you know, yeah, the God from above. The, you know, what is it? The the free market, the invisible hand. Yeah, I will be touched by the invisible yes. hand as a free market, and it will be good, and it will. Yeah, I, I mean, yeah, you tell. I mean, like, there's there's so much room for like a uh, comparative religion. Uh, you know, kind of yeah. look at this. Um, I mean. Almost knocked you know, me out of my lotus position here, you know. And, you know, and of course, like, you know, the Quakers, some of the least problematic white people in the history of white people, um, you know, were out here being sustainable investing homies back in like 1760 with the establishment of, you know, yeah. Quakers fiduciary and stuff, you know, yep. 1790, but it was a long time ago. Anyway, um, yeah, being a hippie spine. <laughs> Awesome. <laughs> um, the last question, I mean, I guess it's sort of a transition to the gover to the, um, the garden tip, the garden tip. And, you know, I guess, you know, the, this asker may, may not really, um, understand California as a concept. Um, Interesting. What, sort of, what sort of cover crops are you planting for winter? And some question is, is winter a thing? Yeah. Well, it's so funny you asked that because there's like four problems with, with this question, but we love you for asking. Uh, just so you know, like we just love you so much. Thank you for asking. Yeah. It's so um, we like in my little, little area here, we live up in the hills um, where we have a bit more space because land is very pricey in the Californias. And so um, we actually, in the areas we don't want growth, we put mulch down. Yep. And so that prevents weeds from popping up because actually in the winter, it's like one of the few times that like a bunch of shit grows naturally grass. Huh. Yeah. We get a lot of grass, <laughs> like huh. shitloads of grass. In fact, in the spring, we have to have somebody come in and weed whack it all hmm. because of the forest fire risk. Oh. So remember that <laughs> we live in a place where like having a lot of ground cover is dangerous as F. <laughs> You know, so like we put mulch down to keep the ground cover down for certain areas. <laughs> exactly. So this is like trying to keep my fire insurance down. Um, and, and then in the other parts, we just let it grow like crazy. And it's beautiful. Like you get all these like beautiful um, spring flowers that come up with this stuff. But eventually oh. as the flowers die, like you need the weed whacker dude to come out and clear it. So you don't have to, because then by the time you get to August, if you leave it, it's brown. And it's like, my God, it's like the ultimate fire kindling. Yep. So yep. that's what we do. And we don't really have winter here, by the way. So that, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So like, uh, by the way, like, so, you know, if we did that, we could die. And also winter is not a thing. And like, uh, to tell you how much winter is not a thing, I have the same tomato plant that has lived four years in a row. I saw that on Twitter and I'm so jealous of you. Yes. We're in a fight about that. Yeah. Like, I, it's like, my tomatoes are like these 98 pound weaklings upstairs. Like... <laughs> 
they die. Well, I mean, you're in New York. It's cold as shit. Here, we our tomato plants are like annuals, schmanuals. Like, we just go every year. Yeah, I mean, look, the, I, like, that's pretty rad. Like, I mean, we, you know, here, cover crops are a valid concept. And, you know, cover crops for the uninitiated are, are things that you grow um, over the winter that are kind of sacrificial in a way. Um, that kind of like keep soil alive, um, and replenish nutrients so that you can plant the crops you actually want. Um, but, uh, you know, this year I, uh, I, a hot tip from a friend and planting garlic as a cover crop. Uh, oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Which you can just do, you can just plant the garlic that you get. By uh, the way, like oven roasted garlic, like so good. I mean, yeah, you just, yeah, it's so easy. You just, I mean, you, you cut off the top, you drizzle some oil on it, you put it in the oven. And yeah. then like what, what, when it's done, you can literally just squeeze it. You squeeze it, it and then people are like, my God, you're such a good cook. And you're like, I know, I know. Mm. Yeah. And if you, if you want people to think you're a witch, just pop it in the blender afterwards and like mix it up with some other, uh, some other stuff. And you get your roast garlic emulsion sauce. And then you put that on pasta. And you put it on pasta. And then and literally put- people are giving you the Top Gun high five. Where it's yeah. like up top, then down low. You know what up I mean? Up top, down low. Yep. And well, yeah. And you, you know, and you actually get that Tom, the vintage Tom Cruise energy. You do. Um, you do. I guess our last segment is what's happening in the garden. We sort of, I we mean, sort like, of already. T- let's save whatever we had for because this was a long <laughs> one. <laughs> we don't want to do. We don't want to give the people too much content. Uh, exactly. Uh, <laughs> they may never come back. Um, uh, we hope you come back. We do. Uh, we love you. Love you. Bye. Bye. Let me get right now.